Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for the assurance that we have as we turn to it that you will speak to us from its pages. Uh, you are not a fickle, changeable God. You are unchanging. Your years remain the same. You are immutable and eternal. Your word is living and powerful, and you speak to us every time we turn to it. Our prayer is that you grant us ears to hear, and ears to hear in a personal way. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, doing as He alone can do, applying this word that came from an infinitely wise Father's heart to each of us in a personal way, that we might find ourselves humbled before you, instructed, encouraged, directed into your truth, drawn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is another in our occasional uh, series, uh, Basic Bible Basics Revisited. Uh, we'll be taking a, a brief break from Matthew as I gear up for the next section in the gospel. So today, we continue in part three, what should we do with the Bible? And most recently in this series, we learned that the Bible is the Word of God, that what Scripture says, God says. It is God's inerrant Word, and as such, it provides our only starting place. It is inerrant, it is living, it speaks to us with God's authority. But now the question that we look at today is, what do we do with it? How do we respond? What do we do with that truth personally in our lives? So, Roman numeral one, to begin with, it starts in our heart. We must revere it as God's supreme Word. To approach the Word of God correctly, we must revere it as God's supreme Word, bowing the knee before it as uh, that in which we hear the voice of God speak to us with all of the authority of God. So the principle here is that the attitude of our heart is everything to us. Proverbs 4.23 is what we'll look at to begin with, to see the importance of that. Listen to how the Legacy Standard Bible translates Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Or my own translation of the Hebrew text notes that uh, Solomon fronts this, above all you keep watch of, guard your heart. What he's saying is there's many things in your life you keep an eye on, but more than anything else, Watch your heart, Solomon says. Guard your heart. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. Now, what is the heart in Scripture? It's not the center of the emotions, per se. In Scripture, the heart is the center of the person. The heart is action central. It's from our heart that our loves and hates flow. It's in our heart that our thinking takes place. It's in our heart and with our heart that our decisions are made. So, our heart attitude... And the attitude of heart in which we approach Scripture determines how we see Scripture, how we hear Scripture, what we do with Scripture. And everybody approaches Scripture with a heart attitude. It's not possible not to. We all start with a conviction about Scripture. Now, I can hear someone say, well, I don't. I, I approach Scripture absolutely neutral. I, 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 I approach it like it was any other book. And what I want to point out to you is that's not neutral. That is an approach. That is already a bias. That is already a conviction. Well, just ask this question. What does the Bible claim about itself? Does it claim to be just like any other book? You can go ahead and answer that one. Does it just claim to be like any other book? 
No, it does not. The Bible claims for itself that it is the word of God. And the Bible commands our belief. Now, I respond to that. Everyone responds to that. And the way we approach Scripture comes from that response. We either approach it as the word of God in obedience to its command. And if we do anything else, we're not. We're rejecting that command. We're disobeying the command. We're rejecting that claim. So, to approach the Bible like any other book is at the outset, to reject what it says about itself. It's not a neutral approach at all. So, our heart determines how we see the Bible. We must, in our hearts, bow before the authority of God. God Himself assures us that He speaks to us in the Word. So, in bowing before Him, we must bow before His Word. As Puritan Thomas Manton said, if anyone belittles the words of Scripture, he belittles God whose stamp is on every word. Every word is the word of God. And we must revere God. And we revere God by revering the word. Approaching it with reverence. In it we hear God speak to us. That's the principle. Let's look at a pattern. Uh, Bible, the Bible actually gives us examples of people who do and do not do that. Uh, one great example of somebody who did is found in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now, we won't go over the whole chapter in detail, but I commend it to you. I'd, I'd encourage you to read it when you go home. 1 Samuel 3 is the story of young Samuel, a, a gift of God to Hannah, who had been infertile. And so she commits Samuel to the service of God at the tabernacle. She brings young Samuel, who's a Levite, and gives him to Eli to do service to Yahweh in the tabernacle. And at this point in 1 Samuel 3, he's got the night shift I guess maybe that's what you give to the new guys. But he's got the night shift to make sure that the menorah doesn't go out, that the candlestick in the tabernacle does not go out. So he's staying in the tabernacle at night while Eli the priest is off sleeping. And as Samuel watches in the dark, from the dark comes a voice saying one word, his name, Samuel. Well, what's he to think? He thinks the most natural. He thinks Eli must be calling him. So he, he gets up and he goes and he finds Eli. And he says, yes, yeah, so what did you want? Eli said, I didn't call you. Stop bothering me. Let me go back to sleep. Samuel shrugs and goes back to his post. This happens three times. Three times Samuel hears a voice as distinctly as you're hearing my voice calling his name. And the second time he goes to Eli, says the same thing, gets the same response. The third time he goes to Eli, Eli the priest realizes that it's Yahweh himself calling Samuel. And so he counsels Samuel. He tells Samuel what he should do next time he hears himself call. What he says is in verse 9. He does not tell Samuel, well, if he calls you again, then you go back and you say to God, let's hear what you have to say and then I'll decide how to respond. That is not what Eli says to do. And he doesn't tell Samuel to go back and say, all right, negotiations are open. Make me your best offer and we'll see what I do with it. He doesn't tell him that. And he doesn't tell him, well, uh, tell me how you can help me achieve my goals and then I might let you in. No, what does, what does Samuel say? What does Eli say to Samuel that he should say? Speak, Yahweh, for your slave is listening. Speak, Yahweh, for your slave is listening. There is only one appropriate response to the Word of God. 
And that's the response of reverence. So in just these few words, he advises Samuel to approach God as a slave whose duty is to hear anything God says to him. To not put any limits on it, not to say, speak happy things to me, or speak congenial things to me, or speak flattering things to me, or certainly speak what I want to hear. No, God is God. He's the slave. He's there to hear anything God has to say. Are you with me? And this is the pattern for our response to God's Word. What other response would even be rational? We're talking about the Word of our Creator, of our Lord, of our God. And so, what other stance could a redeemed sinner approach his Lord with other than to say, you talk, I'll listen, I'm your slave. Speak, I'm listening. So God's Word comes to you and me in Scripture as surely as it came to Samuel in an audible voice. And if anybody were to say, well, if God ever spoke to me, I certainly would respond that way. Well, how would I answer that? God has spoken to us. God has spoken to each of us in His Word. And we're always responding to it. But are we responding as we should? And the only heart attitude with which we should respond is the attitude that says, I'm your slave, you tell me what you want to tell me, and I'll listen as a slave should listen. So there's a pattern for us as to how to approach Scripture with the heart attitude of reverence, hearing God's Word as God's Word. So let's talk about the practice of this letter C in your outline. We must never approach Scripture as most do, which is as if we were God's equal, or God forbid, as if we were His critic, as if we're over Scripture. I recently had a discussion with a a Bible scholar on this very topic, and I was trying to find out exactly where he stood on some issues. He's an authority on one issue where uh, all Bible-believing Christians would agree, but I had the impression that he didn't accept all of Scripture's authority. And so I started dialoguing with him and asked him a few specific questions. And he kind of dodged what I asked him and, and tried to challenge me back. Well, what about this? What about that? And I said, my stance is to come under the Word of God. That's the bottom line. Whatever Scripture says, I want to be under it. I'm not over it. I'm not its critic. I'm not, I'm not able to say, okay, well, what it says about homosexuality, for instance, makes perfect sense to me for all of these reasons. But this part, it doesn't really, you know, it, it doesn't suit my thinking, so I'll just reject it. You might say, well, that person's great on homosexuality. Yes, but he's totally wrong about the Bible. Agreeing with what the Bible says about homosexuality in that case would just be a happy coincidence and not the fruit of being under Scripture. Are you following me? If I'm under Scripture, I'm under everything Scripture says for one reason. Not because I've decided that it's what I think, but because it is the voice of God, and I need to learn what God thinks so that I can think God's thoughts after Him. Amen? Amen. So there's the practice. We must never approach Scripture as if we were God's equal, if, if you were to approach Scripture as if you were God's equal, you should expect, I should expect the same response that Job got. Do you remember how that went for Job? When he insisted at length that all he wanted was his day in court, for, to meet God as his equal, and to argue these things through, and he was confident it would work out well for him. And how did it work out? 
Well, the first thing God said when he appeared before Job, and Job was instantly humbled, uh, showing his, his godly attitude. I mean, he was going through a rough time and needed to be brought to repentance, and God did. But, but God didn't do this briefly. God went on at length, and he said, well, I'll tell you what, you wanted to talk as equals. I'm fine with that. You just tell me where you were when everything was created. Tell me how you did that. Tell me how you feed all the animals. Tell me how you keep the stars hanging in the sky. Explain all that to me. Show me you're, you're my peer, and then we'll talk like peers. And Job got the point right away and took it to heart. Uh, and, and so God would say the same to us if we came to Scripture saying, well, you know, I like this part and I like this part, but this part, you know, I just that, you know, that is not going to fly. That, that I, I really can't get behind that. Well, what you mean is you really can't get under it. And that's where we need to be. We need to be under it. Years ago, I wrote a, 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 an article on this subject in the Pyromaniacs blog. And there was a girl there, who, a lady, who proclaimed loudly that she really believed the gospel and she was really a Christian. And she commented on this thread that there were a number of things in particularly the Old Testament that she just didn't, uh, didn't agree with. Particularly, uh, God's order to Moses and to Joshua to exterminate the Canaanites who were living in his land. She thought that that did not meet her moral judgment. She saw that as wrong. So I did the best I could to, to bring to her really directly. So what you're saying then is that your moral sensibility is superior to Jesus's. Because Jesus affirms the whole Old Testament without exception as the word of God. So you're putting your moral judgment over Jesus's, which is to say you're putting your moral judgment over God's. And her response was to dance and to dodge, but never to deal. She just did not deal with that fact. And, and this is a thing I've come up with many times over the years. I have no answer for stubborn pride, except just to give the word of God. But if somebody just doesn't want to believe something, just does not want to come under the Word of God on some issue that it teaches, well, I mean, that's where it stops. And, and bringing the authority of God is the best one can do. We sinners, saved by grace alone, need to kneel before our Lord from the heart. And that means to kneel before His Word from the heart. When we approach it, we should expect, unless, unless you've arrived... And you got everything worked out, and there's some people who think they have. Might not say it with their mouths, but they say it with their attitude. Nobody's quite as good or as smart. You know, no church is good enough. No, anybody's good enough. And uh, they approach God, um, well, you know, in theory, yeah, sure, they're wrong about things, but not in any particular way. <laughs> so unless we're that person, we should approach God expecting to be corrected, expecting to be reproved, rebuked, exhorted, instructed, humbled, encouraged, lifted up, taught, all the things that Scripture does. But God gets to say what He wants. And He gets to say anything He wants. And everything He says, we need to listen to. Amen? That's how it works out. That's the practice. Always and only think of Scripture with respect as God's Word. Don't speak of it belittling, belittlingly or slightingly, and more, don't think of it belittlingly and slightingly. And if in something, and this happens with all of us, we hit something that's a bump that, that we don't get, well then, obviously, I've missed something. There's something I'm wrong about. There's something I need to learn. I don't correct the teacher's guide. It corrects me. 
Amen? So first we uh, revere it as God's supreme word. Roman numeral two, we treasure it as God's sufficient word. And as I've said to you a number of times, I think this doctrine is the doctrine that is most fundamentally under fire today, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and some of the most damaging mm, enemies of this doctrine are the ones who pose as friends. They will not say outright, like, like a, an Eastern Orthodox said to me decades ago, yes, the Bible's a very good book as far as it goes, but we need to read other books too. They'll usually not be that open, but what they will say is the Bible is absolutely the, God, the, the Word of God. Absolutely the Word of God, and it's sufficient But for a personal relationship with God, you need to learn to hear God's voice. And that's not Scripture. That's something we need to... And they'll write books about it telling us how to do that. And or they still expect tongues or prophecies or sorts of bits of semi-revelation still dribbling down from heaven as if God is that, that person who just can't finish his thought, you know? That person with his hand on the doorknob who's supposed to be saying goodbye but just can't say that final word and just keeps dribbling out stuff. No, that's not our conviction. Our conviction is that Scripture contains every word we need from God. So the sufficient, uh, for sufficient, word, uh, sufficient for what is, is a perfectly good question, though. Is it sufficient for tuning my, the engine of my car? Is it sufficient for filling up the coolant in my air conditioner? Is it sufficient for brain surgery? Well, no, those are not what it was given for. What is it sufficient for? Let me suggest two general things, although we could say a whole lot more. Uh, a, it is fully sufficient for knowing God. It is God-sufficient, fully sufficient for knowing God. Turn to 1 John 3 with me. And let me explain. When I say turn, what I'm trying to say is turn there. Pick up a Bible or get your phone app on and either flip or tap, whichever applies. But I'd like our eyes all to be looking at 1 John 3, and I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. So, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we've seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to step aside from my outline for just a second. Look at, look at verse 3. What's the, what's the design of His writing, according to verse 3? It's after the so that. Why is He writing this? Is he writing this so that you too can touch and feel? So that I can hear and see? No, he can't do those things for us. That is something, verse 1, that the apostles alone experienced and those who are in Jesus' ministry. So he can't give us that. But we still can have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, but he mentions the two. 
How do we have that fellowship? Well, that's what this letter is about. So now let's look at it in order. Verse 1 is contact, you could call it. Verse 2 is communication. Verse 3 is communion. So, contact, verse 1. He says we, and I believe he means we, the apostles. Uh, That which was from the beginning is Jesus and his message. Jesus and his teaching. And he's heard that and can still hear it. And he's seen it with his eyes, beheld and touched it with his hands. This was first-hand personal experience concerning the word of life. So he had personal contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, his ministry, hearing his teaching, the whole revelation of God in Christ. That's contact. But now verse 2 gets into communication. And the life was manifested. It was made visible. That's how we saw and heard and touched. The life was manifested. And we've seen. And then what did we do with it? Kept it to ourselves and went off into a desert to think about it for the rest of our lives? No. We bear witness. God gave them that first-hand contact that they might give it to others, that they might bear witness to others and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So, the apostles have contact with Christ and His teaching. The apostles bear witness and proclaim that. And what's the effect of that? Verse 3, communion, fellowship. What we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may also have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So you ask me, how can I know God? And my simple answer is through the Word of God. Because these are the witnesses Jesus chose, authorized, and qualified and equipped to communicate God's Word to us. And the way we have communion with God is through His Word. By means of His Word, this is our point of contact ordained by God by which we too have fellowship. So we don't need, to, we don't need a time machine to go back so that we too can see Jesus and hear what He says. We don't need to be transported to those days. We shouldn't sigh and lament and think, ah, oh, if only I could have lived then. That's not John's perspective. John's perspective is you can have communion just as real as ours by listening to our proclamation. As Jesus said, the Holy Spirit would lead them into all truth. So that what they wrote, they wrote with the authority of Jesus. So that it's the word of Jesus. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, 37, what I write to you is the Lord's commandment. These are the words of God. And this is God's means of our having communion with him. Now, I, I want you to think about that. I want you to grasp that. I want that to grasp all of us. The means of communion with God is not rituals. It's not gestures. It's not smoke machines. It's not drugs. It's not mood-enhancing music. It's not quests. It's not relics. It's the teaching of Scripture plus nothing. It's the teaching of Scripture. That is God's. So I say I'm going to meet you at Starbucks tomorrow. You say which one. Uh, so we'll keep it general. But I, I say I'll meet you at this, this specific Starbucks tomorrow at 10. You want to meet with me? Where are you going to be tomorrow at 10? Starbucks. God says to meet me, I'll meet you in my word. That's where I unveil myself. That's where you can have communion with me. 
So this is what God has ordained. It's his one point of contact, and it is sufficient for that. John says that by my proclamation, you'll have fellowship with the Father and with his Son. He doesn't say by that plus anything else, plus any ritual or any word or anything. Through the Word of God, that's where we commune with God. God Himself has appointed this means. So, uh, the issue of how we're going to respond to the Word of God, it, it all hinges on one question. You say, is the question, do I want to have a relationship with God? I would nuance that a little bit. Because everybody thinks he has a relationship with God, right? Everybody. My question is, do you want to have a relationship with God on His terms? Now, if the answer to that question is yes, these are his terms. Here's where he makes himself known to us. And we must approach that with reverence, and we must approach it as fully sufficient for knowing God. And secondly, it is fully sufficient for serving God. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, from which we just read a a few moments ago. Osagi led us in reading 2 Timothy 3. Now let's take a look there. As I said a moment ago, this is a very timely portion of Scripture. It really sounds like he's speaking to our days, doesn't it? Well, indeed, he says, verse 1, but know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, that, that word difficult, kalapoi, it means dangerous. It means stressful. It means hazardous. Would you say we're living in dangerous times? Would you say we're living in stressful, hazardous times? Well, yes, the the most so of my life, at any rate. It's never been quite as chaotic and nuts as it is today. You uh, hardly can say anything right unless you bow to the woke mob today, and the woke mob hates God. So these are dangerous times. So What's, what's Paul going to tell Timothy? Is he, is he going to uh, teach like so many do about how Timothy needs to develop the ability to hear God's voice for himself? Uh, like um, uh, the Blackabees, like Charles Stanley, like, like um, Rick Warren, so many others say you want to have a personal relationship with God. You've got to learn to hear his voice for yourself, not Scripture. You've got to learn to hear his own voice or you can't have a personal relationship. Well, here's what I I would expect uh, Paul to say that to Timothy, wouldn't you? I mean, if he's going into hazardous times, he certainly wants to be tight with God. And if it's necessary to look for further revelation, well, this is exactly where I'd expect to hear Paul say it. Doesn't that make sense? Well, let's see what he does say. Look at verse 14. What does he say? Verse 14, but you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them. So, in face of these hazardous times, Paul doesn't point Timothy to the future. He points him to the past. He does not say, let me tell you how to keep getting fresh words from God or sort of words from God or impressions from God that you'll need for these situations that I can't even dream of and I won't be here for, as he says at the end. He's about to be poured out as a sacrifice. So he's preparing Timothy for our days, for post-apostolic days. And he doesn't say anything about that. He says, remember what you've already been taught. Well, who already taught him? Well, Paul already taught him, for one. You look back in chapter 1, and Paul Paul reminisces very um, poignantly about his relationship with Timothy. Who else taught him? Well, verse 15. 
and that from childhood, now literally the Greek apobrephus, since you were an infant, since you were a babe, you've known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, what body of literature is the sacred writings? You should know this. I've taught you this. What are the sacred writings specifically that Timothy knew from a child? What we call the Old Testament. That's the holy writings, the sacred writings, the hierogrammata. And he says those are sufficient to point you to salvation through faith in Christ. That's an interesting thing that Christ and the apostles taught. The Old Testament pointed to Christ. So he's already been taught in the Old Testament, but Paul's not done. Verse 16, he says, now he said the sacred writings, which is specifically the Old Testament in verse 15. In verse 16, he says more broadly, pasagraphe. All Scripture is theopnostos, God-breathed and profitable for four things, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Now, when he says Scripture, he looks both back to the Old Testament and forward to the New Testament. In chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5, Paul uses the word Scripture to refer to part of Luke's Gospel. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. So when Paul says Scripture now, he's bringing in the New Testament, then in the process of being created. And so everything that has this character of being Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable. Now look at the four ministries for which it's profitable, and I'll, I'll load your minds in advance with my question. My question is, what does this leave out? What essential part of Christian service does this lead up? So, I want, to know, I want to know how to know God. What's the answer to that? Scripture is sufficient to know God. Okay, now I want to know how to live with God, how to live my life, what God wants me to do, what God doesn't want me to do, how God wants me to think, how He wants me to invest my life and my time. I want to know how to serve Him. Where do I look for that? So, these four functions of Scripture, I want to ask you, what essential area does this not cover? So he says teaching. What is teaching? It's imparting information and understanding, giving the necessary data, so all Scripture is profitable for teaching. Secondly, reproof. Oh, that's rebuking error. That's telling me where I'm wrong. Now, like I said a few minutes ago, we should all expect Scripture to do that. We should be surprised if it doesn't. We should be surprised if we come away from any sizable reading of Scripture without at least one nick or cut. Any amens to that? Scripture knows who we are and where we are, and it speaks to where we are. So, teaching, reproof. Thirdly, correction. So, that's after the rebuke. This is the now, here's what you do. Let me put you right. The bone's been broken, now let me set it. That's what that word's about. And then finally, training in righteousness. Now, what, what's righteousness? It's a God-pleasing life. Righteousness, the idea, the biblical idea of righteousness is lining up with God's values, His standards, His morality, if you will, for me. Righteousness lines up with that. I am not naturally walking that way. I need to be born again even to start walking that way. And born again, I still need training. Where do I go for training? Oh, Paul says you're in luck, though we don't believe in luck. You're blessed. Because Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, now, what does that leave out? 
What essential area of Christian living does that leave out? No area. Tells me how to think, tells me where I'm wrong, sets me right, and instructs me in how to live. And as if that doesn't say it, Paul goes on to verse 17, and he says, so that the man of God, and and most English um, Bibles, um, many English Bibles fall short here. The LSB does not. It shows a Greek wordplay that's actually very important. So that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul uses an adjective and then a verb form of that adjective, stressing the point that my readiness, my, my equipedness, if that's a word, is now, uh, if my, what my equipedness depends on is Scripture, and Scripture thoroughly equips me for many good works. Right? Huh? Every good work. Nothing is excluded. So if it's not in Scripture, then it's not a concern. If it is a concern to God, it's in Scripture. Scripture equips me for every good. Oh, no, it doesn't just equip me. It thoroughly equips me for every good work. So my question is, what does that leave out? And as I've said, the answer of a great many who may be perfectly sound in a dozen other important areas, when it comes to this area, their answer is unsound. Because they have to say, oh, I totally believe in that verse. But it's so important to learn to hear God's personal voice to you. Just like Scripture never says. The thing that Scripture says it does, they say they'll teach you how to get someplace else. That's just wrong. I mean, it's, it's not just wrong, it's damaging. It's harmful. It's, it's hurtful. And it's less to the good of the church and it's less to the glory of God. Uh, it, it is a harmful teaching. Scripture says it's all there. So as theologian John Frame says it very well, Scripture contains all the divine words we need for any aspect of human life. Anything for which I need a word from God, it's in Scripture. 100%, not like Pat Robertson said once, 96%. He literally said that. 96% of what you need as a Christian is in Scripture. So that 4%, that's what he's got to tell you how to find. No, not 96%. 100% of what we need. Now, maybe not what we desire, but what we need is in Scripture for any aspect of human life. So, what divine words do I need? Do, do I need a divine word on how to tie my shoes or how to grill a steak or how to spend money? No, I know how to do those things. But I do need a divine word telling me whether it's right or wrong to steal the shoes that I then tie. Or uh, whom to thank for creating the cattle from which we get yummy steaks. Or uh, God-honoring ways to acquire money and to invest it. Yes, I need God's word for that. And God's word gives me all those things and everything I need to be fully equipped for every good work. So we must approach it as sufficient for knowing God and sufficient for serving God. Now, let's apply this personally. And I just would like to point out uh, two particular things of the many we could look at. First, our embracing Scripture marks us as elect. Our embracing Scripture marks us as elect. 
What is the sign that someone is elect, has been elected in eternity past? It's that he embraces Scripture now in history. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. With me? Yes, really, please do turn there. Verses 4 and the beginning of verse 5 is what we'll focus on first. Now, Paul is starting saying just how delighted he is with them and how he always thanks God for them. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Why do you particularly give thanks for all of them, Paul? Well, verse 4, he tells us, knowing, brothers beloved by God, your election. Now, how can he possibly know that they're elect? Was he there when, before the foundation of the world when God regarded the mass of fallen humanity and from that mass selected a subset to give to his son to come and say? Was Paul there? Did he see the list of names? Did he see the individuals that God in sovereign grace chose? No, he did not. Is he claiming that he did? No, he's not. Just read the next verse. How do you know this, Paul? Some special apostolic power or revelation? No. He says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full assurance, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He knew that they're elect because when they heard the gospel, whether it was at the first hearing or the 15th hearing, but at some point when they heard the gospel, they responded They embraced it. They didn't just respond. He says it came in power with the Holy Spirit and in full assurance. This is a mark of the work of God in His elect. Uh, To put it in the terms that Jesus uses, they heard the shepherd's voice. Now the shepherd calls and the goats hear that voice, but they don't respond to that voice. He's not their shepherd. But the shepherd's sheep hear His voice. And they respond to His voice. And so Paul says, when you heard the gospel and you, you said, I mean, I preach the gospel to 500 people, 500 people hear it, and a a number smaller than 500, (laughs) uh, well, probably, I mean, of course, I'd be delighted if the number were 500, but in all likelihood, a number smaller than 500 hear that gospel and say, "That that is the most wonderful news I've ever heard. Can that possibly be true? How can I have this Jesus for my Savior? But the other remainder of the number hears the same thing, and it does not one thing to them. Or they, it offends them, or, or they scoff at it, they mock it, they ignore it. They do something that three soils do <laughs> when, the, when, the, when the seed is sown. Either it's plucked away or things choke it out, but they don't sprout up and bear fruit. So G- Paul says this is the mark of their election. He says it in a different way in chapter 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. Now notice in both places, he doesn't say, we just want to commend you for how reasonable you were. We want to commend you on how objective you were, that you decided to use your, your, your free will to, stop, to turn yourselves from being God-haters to turn yourself into God-lovers. What a great job you did. How wise people and wonderful people you are. Uh, great job, Thessalonians. That's not what he says. He thanks God. He knows it's a work of God. When a dead, God-hating sinner comes to life and runs to Christ, that's a work of God. And so in 2.13, he says, we thank God without ceasing that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. 
Oh, he'd experienced the other a great deal in Thessalonica and elsewhere. People who heard that same gospel and were enraged and did all they could to snuff it out. But they didn't. Why? Because they're smart? No, because of God's saving grace. This marks them as elect. This marks them as those whom God chose for himself. It shows in embracing the word of God. That is a mark of God's election. Uh, And then secondly, our continuing in Scripture marks us as disciples. Marks us as disciples. Turn to John chapter 8 if you would please. Gospel of John chapter 8. If you turn to 1 John 8, you probably wouldn't find it, but I'd, I'd want to know if you did. But Gospel of John chapter 8. And verse 31, Jesus says one of the most frequently misquoted and misapplied portions of Scripture. Sometimes people will ask a poll, you know, what's the most misapplied verse of Scripture? This would have to be right up there at the top, part of this. He says to them, now notice the steps. He says to them, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And what comes of being a disciple of Jesus? You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Ah, there's the part that everybody quotes, but totally out of context. Not talking about what Jesus is talking about, and certainly not including the terms Jesus lays down. Now, I want to know truth. How do I know truth? Well, I've got to be a disciple of Jesus. And how do I be a disciple of Jesus? I continue in his word. I abide in his word. So many people come and leave. They come and go. They hear something, sounds good to them, try it for a while, and they find Christianity hard, so they leave it. And, and people say, well, okay, see, a lot, there's a lot of ex-Christians. There are no ex-Christians. Uh, it just depends on how you define what a Christian is. If you define a Christian as anybody who says Jesus is Lord, well then, yeah, there's lots of ex-Christians. But Jesus defines his disciple here. And how does he define a disciple? Somebody who at one point says Jesus is Lord? I'd refer you to Matthew chapter 7. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of my Father. So what is the mark of a disciple? What's a real disciple by Jesus' definition? You continue in his word. That's a mark of a disciple. So we're marked as elect when we embrace the word of God as God's word. And we're marked as disciples when we continue in the work of Jesus, word of Jesus. And only as we continue in the word of Jesus, then we know the truth. And then we're set free. But first, we continue in his word. So our continuing in scripture marks us as disciples. We must revere Scripture as God's supreme word. We must treasure it as God's sufficient word. And third and finally, we must read it as God's word, letter A, to us. Sorry, God's final word. We must read it as God's final word to us. So Roman numeral three, we must read it as God's final word, letter A, to us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, towards the end of your Bibles. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, 
spoke to us. So, to us. Now, I want to show you that although maybe uh, we read that lightly, we need to put a lot of weight on that. The fact that God, when God spoke, He spoke to us. So, that rules out, that is as opposed to anything that makes the Word of God hidden and obscure and only decipherable by the use of a particular decoder ring. Have you heard such things? Because there are a great many of them. In older days, in Jewish circles, there's the Kabbalah that looks for a meaning in the numbers of letters and the numbers of words and, and just really things that are very, very opaque, very, very difficult to see. But boy, those who think they can see them really think that, boy, they've, they've found the hidden wisdom. Well, that's the problem. How did God speak? He spoke to us. So this rules out anything that is not God speaking to us. It rules out mysticism and New Age religion. I was in a New Age cult in the 70s, and we were always looking for the deeper meaning. And don't you know the deeper meaning was always different than the plain meaning. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, well, he can't mean that, obviously, Because we know that we don't need Jesus to know God. We know that we all are expressions of God, and God lives in all of us. So what he really means must be the I am inside of all of us is the way to God. I I kid you not. That is the explanation that 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 cult gave. Now, what are the chances anybody hearing Jesus would think that's what he was saying? Well, let's see. Zero divided by zero. Multiplied by zero when you carry the zero. That makes zero. There's no chance anyone would have thought. And this is God speaking to us. That's what I'm trying to drive home. If, if it's that hidden, if it's that mystical, if it's that obscure, then it's something that none of his hearers could have understood, and it can't be. Or allegory or spiritualization, it can't be any of those things because that's not how they would have taken it. And that was actually the point that the Lord used in bringing me to salvation. I mean, remember I've talked to you about the elements of faith, and the first element of faith is you've got to know what you're being called to believe. And when there's that level of obscuring, I don't even know what the gospel is, right? Because I don't even know what Jesus is saying. But I came to a point where I had to ask myself, well, now, if Jesus meant to say that, could he have said that more plainly? If he meant to say we're all our own way to God, we say he's a great teacher. (laughs) So is there a way to say that better than I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me? And I had to answer no. He could have said that a whole lot better ways if that's what he meant. But if he'd meant that we need to come through him personally, Jesus Christ, as the mediator to know God as Father, could he have said that more plainly? I wasn't saved, but I had to honestly say, no, that's really about the best way to say that. And that's what the Word of God is. It's God's Word to us. So let me, I, I should have made clear, and I'm sorry, I'm expanding this. To us meaning this, that stated is God speaks to us in our language. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm working on with you. God speaks to us in our language. Now listen, what I mean is Scripture is not a soliloquy. What's a soliloquy? When somebody just talks to himself. And all that matters is that he understands what he's saying because he's not talking to anybody else. You say, I don't understand that. He says, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> I was talking to me and I understood it perfectly. Well, the Bible's not that. 
How do you know that, Pastor Dan? I read Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. God, having spoken to the fathers, has spoken to us. So God speaks to us in terms we can't understand. Now, do you think God is, is fairly good at communicating? Well, who, who invented communication? Who is the first speaker? The only person who's good at communicating is God. So yes, he is very good. He knows how to say exactly what he means, and that's what he says. When he said, let there be light, um, a um, hamburger didn't pop into existence. He, he meant light. He said light. Light turned on. God uses plain speech. He speaks our language. And so expanding that, letter B, the Bible uses normal speech. Now, this is called the grammatico-historical method. You don't have to write that down. All it means is the normal rules of grammar spoken in that setting of time. You don't read some passage of Scripture and say, oh, that's talking about automobiles. No, it's not. (laughs) Unless you find a really old automobile there in Palestine one day. But no, it's speaking in terms to communicate to the folks of that time using the language of that time. So we study, I study Scripture in the Hebrew and Greek texts, normal rules of communication, nothing, nothing special or fancy. Uh, although, of course, there are figures of speech. That's normal communication. David L. Cooper gave a, 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 a Bible teacher of a past generation, gave this rule, which I committed to memory. I changed just a little bit. But he says, when the plain sense of Scripture makes good sense, I'll email this out to you. I actually meant to put it in your outline. Sorry, I'll email this out to you. When the plain sense of Scripture makes good sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word in its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and fundamental and axiomatic truths clearly indicate otherwise. Now, that's, that's easy to illustrate. There is, I mean, does that allow for figures of speech? Well, uh, normal language uses more figures of speech than a hive has bees, right? I mean, figures of speech pour out of our mouths like a, like a mighty river. The air is black with figures of speech. What I just do? I gave you a bunch of figures of speech. Did you understand what I was saying? Sure you did. It's just normal communication. And of course, the Bible has figures of speech. Jesus says, I am the door. Now, it's axiomatic that he was not actually a door. That's axiomatic. But do you have to know what a literal door is to know what he meant? Yes, you do. And do we know what a door is? Yes, we do. So do we know what Jesus is saying? Yes, we do. And so uh, that's an example of, uh, of exactly what Dr. Cooper was saying. The Bible speaks in normal human language. And, and people try to hide behind this. So like people come back to Genesis 1 and they say, oh, that, that's not literal. You're not supposed to read that literally. That's, that's poetry. And somebody who's read Hebrew for almost 50 years, like me, comes in and says, um, Hebrew poetry is very distinctive. And that's not Hebrew poetry. That reads just like the rest of Genesis. It's just a straight historical narrative. You can't hide behind that. It's plain speech. In the context, the normal syntax, the rules of Hebrew narrative, it's just narrative. Uh, 
Or again, now here's a, a thing where Bible-believing Christians part company from each other, but Jeremiah 31, you might just note it down. Jeremiah 31 has a promise for, for Israel and Judah that God promises to one day make a new covenant, uh, forgive their sins, write His laws on their hearts. And God promises that sun, moon, and stars will pass away before they cease being a, a nation before Him. Well, along come many Christians and they say, well, what Israel and Judah really mean is it means the New Testament church. It really means the Gentile church. That's the, that's the spiritual fulfillment of what that language is. And you have to then say, okay, would anybody who read Jeremiah have taken it that way? Would Jeremiah writing about Judah and Jerusalem think, I'm actually not writing about Jews at all. I'm writing about Gentile Christians. Any chance he'd think that? Or anybody would think that? There's no chance. So that's not the normal understanding of language. And the Bible is meant to be read as normal language. So it is God's word to us. And letter B, it is God's word focused on Christ. And there we read verse 2 again. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. The Greek text literally just says He's spoken to us in Son. The Old Testament revelation was by prophets in various ways and portions. Now the revelation is Son-wise. It's in one who is God's Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. So here the writer subordinates thousands of years of Old Testament revelation uh, over uh, many ways and in many fashions and in many helpings in three ways. It is bit by bit, not complete. It is now and again, not in one dose. And it is past from now. The revelation in the sun is none of those things. It is complete. It is in one event, the coming of Christ. And it is God's word to us now. It's his final word to us. God's final word to us is in Christ. This is the climax of God's revelation. Jesus is the climax of God's revelation. Everything in the Old Testament pointed forward and led forward to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And now he speaks to us in the Son. And if we won't listen to Jesus, we will never listen to God. Because Jesus is where God speaks to us. Uh, so many scriptures says that. You read Colossians 1, which just talks about how, how Jesus created all things, and all things were created for him, and he holds all things together. But what's true about the universe is certainly true about scripture. Scripture points forward to Jesus and hinges on Jesus. I would say without Jesus, all of scripture just falls apart into nonsense. It can't be made sense out of if it doesn't come to Jesus. He said this same thing a number of times, but I'll point you to Luke chapter 24 and remind you of what he said in Luke 24, 44 to 47. Speaking to his apostles, Jesus says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and by that he sums up the whole Old Testament, all things written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. And then he says, he opened their mind to understand the Scripture, and he said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So he says that in all... Now, he's not saying every word in the Old Testament points to him, but every part of the Old Testament points to him. In one way or another, it all comes to coalescence. It all culminates in Jesus. Paul says that in Romans 10.4, that the law culminates in Christ is the culmination of the law. It all, and Jesus said the same, Matthew 5.17, that um, he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so it all points forward to him. So it is God's word to us, primarily about Christ. Now there we go. We've talked about what the Bible is in the past. It's the Word of God. Now we've talked about, so what do we do with this Word of God that's been given to us? Well, we revere it as God's supreme Word. We treasure it as God's sufficient Word. And we read it as God's Word to us, focused on Christ. So I think of the the little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know but can I know that? And, and how can I know that Jesus loves me? Many professed Christians live in uncertainty because they look to their feelings. They want God to assure them emotionally that He loves them, or they look to their circumstances, and things are going rough, and they're not sure whether God loves them when they look at their circumstances. But the answer is, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For the Bible tells me so. Even when my feelings don't, even when my circumstances don't, have I learned to look to the Bible as God's sufficient word to me and to rest on that word. That's, that's what Christian living is. The Bible tells me so. Not the Bible plus, plus the priest. Not the Bible plus the church. Not the Bible plus my feelings or my visions or my uh, experiences. No, because the Bible tells me in sufficient plain language and there is where I rest myself. The Bible has every word we need from God. And I just would, would say as I close to anyone who's come, uh, come in and who's not a Christian and you would like to know God and you'd like to know how to know God, My good news to you is that you need not be lost in the darkness of your feelings and your subjectivism and the chaos of human opinion uh, everywhere. God has a light in the darkness. God has a light in the darkness, and that light is God's Word. God's Word shows us the way to salvation and redemption and reconciliation to God. But will we see it? Will we follow it? If so, it will lead us to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for what it teaches us, for the wonderful words of life that point us to the life that was manifested in Jesus Christ, which the apostles bear witness to, so that we might have fellowship with you and with your Son by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for that revelation. Thank you for that marvelous work. And my prayer is that every Christian will live in the full assurance and wisdom of submission to that word and standing on that word. And my prayer is that the lost who've come in today, who have come in not yet knowing Christ, that they will be drawn to bow the knee before you and to believe in the truth of your word, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and come to know you on your terms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.